Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Enter Player 2 podcast. I'm Nicole McFall, and I'm joined by Player 2, Carl Murray. We discuss anything and everything about the world of games. Our show features deep dive discussions where we answer the questions that have all been on our minds, as well as that, we're going to go head to head in the Game of the Week showdown. Today, we are going to step into the world of virtual reality gaming. Specifically, is virtual reality gaming too exclusive? And has it had the lift off we expected it would? I think when we talk about virtual reality gaming, there's really two ways of thinking about this. The first being that a lot of people think it's still a concept that's really a novelty and we still have a lot of ways to go. What's the second camp being that we're still too early into that journey for us really to have any sort of conclusive answer to that question. So it's not so much a matter of growth at this point, but rather we're getting to a mature point where VR gaming could be substantial. So what's your thoughts on this card? Do you think we've really had sort of uprise in VR gaming that we expected we would? I have to agree on your first point there, saying about that VR gaming is going to be the future. I feel that it will be, but back in 2016, VR games weren't really at a great point. They were more like experiences, and any real game that was made was either very short or it was terrible games. I feel that finally in 2020, VR games are finally starting to come into their stride, but for a long time, I was in the against camp. So it's just sort of going on what you are saying there about finally getting into the VR gaming industry. What sort of games have you been hearing in the pipeline that you really you're sort of rooting for at this point? The game that I'm really rooting for was Resident Evil 7. At the time, whenever it came out, it really revolutionized VR gaming, merging the VR aspect along with the AAA title. It was the first game that you could really play full that was uh, not really an experience, but more a, a AAA game. So you would almost argue that it's properly fully fleshed it's been well articulated and all the mechanics of the virtual reality headset is really sort of being catered for yeah so like you could play through it on the ps4 controller or you could put it on and you could actually feel like you're submerged i really feel that it added more to the game compared to playing on a normal console well you could certainly argue that in terms of the virtual reality experience it's all about immersion so resident evil 7 naturally is a game that more or less Scars the bejesus out of you. So in terms of immersion, having that sort of like, you know, the sounds going on in your head, the lights, the movement, being completely immersed in an environment that's supposed to spook you so yeah, much. Yeah, be completely scarred altogether. <laughs> One could argue that like it's the best recipe for a zombie game as well as a virtual reality game. So you're sort of hitting and ticking all those boxes. But could you not certainly argue that there's some virtual reality games have those triple a titles attached to it when i say that i sort of talk about skyrim um fallout yeah uh one could even argue no man's sky we'll not talk about that too much (laughs) (laughs) yes Um, yes this goes on and on you know what i mean so there's skyrim vr that's a fully fleshed game what's your issue with that Skyrim is a great game altogether, but it doesn't really need a virtual reality it's the same with fallout vr i feel like that Bethesda have tried to shoehorn this in. It's like they believe the virtual reality is going to be the next thing. However, they want to take existing titles and put them into the the VR experience. So, you know, Skyrim's a fully made world. Same with Fallout 4. And they've literally just clicked import, export, and let's map the controls in the VR and maybe swish around with. So it's not a game that's been made for VR. It's just a game that's been sort of imported into VR compared to the likes of 
Beat Saber. Like Beat Saber is a, a completely different game compared to Fallout uh, and Skyrim VR, but it's a game that's been specifically made and tailored for virtual reality. Could you certainly argue that Beat Saber, although it has its unique appeal, isn't a fully fleshed game? It doesn't have that narrative. It doesn't have that sort of plot that we all crave in our favorite games. So I make an argument that Beat Saber is kind of a amalgamation of both. It's a VR experience. However, it is a game created for VR. You can go back and you can constantly replay it compared to a specific VR experience. I'm going to use a very specific sample here. So Vader Immortal, which was made for VR, it's a three-part series and each of the episodes are individual. So you have to buy them. I think they all come up to maybe £30 or $30, depending on where you are. Beat Saber is a lot less than that. You have a very linear storyline with Vader Immortal and you can do so many things in that. But at the end of it, that's it. That's it over. You don't really want to go back and play it. With Beat Saber, you have all these libraries full of songs. You have all these fan-made songs and you have a lot of stuff that could be imported. So even though you may be doing the same thing over and over and over. There's a library of millions of songs there that you can import into Beat Saber and constantly play. So it's not just the same thing over and over. It's new experiences. In terms of what you were saying there about the VR, VR experience with Vader, it's kind of episodic. You know, like what you were saying there about the DLC aspect of that. You've ticked that box, you move on to the next. But could you not certainly argue the story that you had or experienced rather is more meaningful and stays with the gamer as opposed to this is something I can play every day. I can change this on. It's it doesn't bring you know a fresh outlay in terms of experience. You could even say that with like Rock Band um, and Guitar Hero. It's not really a game you ever get fed up of. I agree and disagree with both your points. I feel that Vader Immortal is a great experience. However, it will stick with the gamer but it doesn't have a lot of replayability and it's a small experience so that whenever companies were starting out and whenever this was built, I feel that back then they really hadn't settled into it. So, for example, I feel that it took companies a while for to develop for VR when they released a VR game or an experience. They didn't really know what they were doing, which is probably the result of some really crappy games in the market and at the very start of the VR life cycle compared to what we have now. So I would say that Vader Immortal would be an experience at the very start when all these games started coming out compared to now where we have Half-Life and it's an amazing game which you can play through and you know the tech has evolved from there. But there's a lot of companies who have tried to put their hands in the VR and have been very, very scared. I think we were doing a wee bit of research for this and we we kind of realised how many uh, companies tried their hand at it and weren't very successful. I totally agree with you on that, but it sort of brings back to what I was saying about virtual reality. We're not at the growth stage, we're at the maturity stage. But also, because it's a new technology, I find there's a lot of companies that aren't traditionally gaming industries hungry to get involved in any way they can you wouldn't think the likes of facebook apple and amazon would be involved and they haven't done a lot of things that are meaningful because they don't really have i think the artistic talents to correlate a game you know that is is meaningful so like amazon's only dabbled in vr with her supportive software there's the pimax ak which proved to be a little bit more than overhyped kickstarter facebook or Oculus was took over by Facebook and it failed to deliver a true Rift. Now we're in the Oculus Rift Quest. Microsoft continued to dabble between mixed reality and HoloLens, but they didn't really have any flagship hardware that's noteworthy of a software platform. 
So I kind of feel like a lot of companies are hungry. They want a slice of the cake. They've dabbled in a wee bit, but they just haven't really spearheaded across that finishing line. And it's all about just that maturity and the growth. Would you expect the likes of these companies to be so hungry to get involved? Is it more of this is the technology we can use in so many different aspects? Or do you think it's the only true home that virtual reality you have would be in gaming? Well, VR as a whole is branching out all over the world. You can see it now that people are trying to incorporate VR experiences, but also VR into daily lives. So being able to have like conference calls and be able to see people's avatars around the room uh, and stuff like that. But you kind of touched on the hardware a wee bit there and I kind of want to, to bring the point back to that that you were saying that companies like Microsoft and all have dabbled in it and not really been successful. Companies also like Google have created um, headsets like the Google Cardboard which has been actually very good to be able to transform your phone into a VR device and then be able to download single-handed experiences whereas Nintendo have tried to do a similar concept with the the labo to turn your switch into a vr game however i haven't tried any of the the vr modes such as zelda or mario but they haven't been very successful so even the gaming companies aren't really sure where to go at this moment in time i feel like valve coming out with their the valve index have been incredibly it's been incredibly detailed they know what they want and they are the first company to really put so much effort into a compared headset. to everywhere else so i feel like the real downfall to this is the technology not just from a hardware and software perspective but also from a price perspective and maybe that's the reason why vr isn't as popular as it is uh, right now because of how expensive it is you were talking there about the expense do you think it's too expensive it makes people feel like they can't be involved in this is it just beyond a gimmick or are we just quite not there yet I think it's kind of a mix between both. At the start, I think people thought oh, it's just a gimmick, but now it, it still is very expensive. If you want to be able to run a good game in VR on no matter what you have, you need to have a really, really beefy computer that's able to handle this as well as a headset on top of this, as well as an area to, to play and, and put around. So for example, the PSVR, uh, you need a PS4 to be able to run that. And then the exact same with the Oculus and the Rift. Um, I know there's one that I'm not too sure if you have to plug it in or not, but I know even with the Valve Index as well, there's a lot of of hardware required for that. So you're maybe, talk, say, making a PC that's going to cost maybe £500, £600 to be able to run this, and then on top of that, a headset that's also going to cost £300 to £400. Plus, if you don't have the space to be able to actually do this, you know, is it worth investing in? I completely agree there. What would you say is your favourite virtual reality headset? I'd say the Valve Index is personally my favourite because you can do so much with it. So you can move each individual finger. And even though it is very, very pricey, I think it's like a thousand pound, a thousand dollars, depending on the region you're in. But it's the fact that you're able to move every single finger in VR, you're able to like do bits and bobs. And I feel like whenever we mention... um, the, the Valve Index, we ha- kind of have to talk a wee bit about Half-Life as well because what it's done for the virtual reality is unbelievable. Like, the amount of stuff you can do in that game. Like, you can play the piano in it. You can, you can literally, like, change channels on TV shows. You can... I know this is not PG, but you can give somebody the finger properly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's just the technology and the love that has went into this game is incredible and i feel like that is 
the blueprint for virtual reality games moving forward and with hardware such as the valve index it's going to give developers a lot more freedom to do more things i understand what you're saying there about the amount of love that's been put into the likes of half-life the only sort of headset that you could really use that with in terms of that game has to be questionably super duper expensive and yeah <laughs> you can understand that there being a lot of love in that and the hardware being so powerful and so demanding could you say that this excludes the casual gamer or it's only for pardon the french the pc latest which i'm very much against because i'm a console gamer but do you think that that excludes the casual gamer and that's why virtual reality hasn't really been extremely profitable it's such an expensive hobby I think that it's maybe even excluded that the hardcore gamers, um, I know you call them the PC sort of master race, but I, I would classify <laughs> that even casual gamers can be hardcore gamers. Casual gamers nowadays are referred to as mobile phone uh, people who use uh, games on mobile, sorry. And I do believe that more the casual gamer or sorry, the more the, the hardcore gamers will be people who play in the PS4 and the Xbox, not not just exclusive the PC. So I think that maybe they're excluded from this as well because at the end of the day, you really, really have to have the money to be able to afford this. And I know people really, really want to play the likes of Half-Life or they really, really want to deep dive into these games, but just not being able to afford the hardware is cutting it off from, this, from their experience. And a couple of years ago, I would always make the argument to one of my former work colleagues that I don't feel that virtual reality is where it's at and I wouldn't purchase a headset until I feel it's at a point. Whereas now, after watching and doing research for this podcast, I feel like I'm sort of going more towards it because we're seeing more, we're seeing better qualities of games come out, longer experiences, and not just uh, virtual reality games that are kind of suited for genres such as racing games or horror games. Yeah, upon researching this for this podcast, I kind of feel like the only sort of way I could describe it is being like <laughs> Smeagol from Lord of the Rings. I'm like, my precious. <laughs> yeah, you want to you join me, it the One Ring. Yeah, I want you to join us. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I was very much in the against camp for a while there, but I started playing a wee bit of it with my good friend who bought an Oculus Quest and I did very primitive things i was i did the you know the sort of vr chat but i've also done other experiences um i've done vader immortal and i've done some of the novelty apps that are quite free like i think it was like the stranger things experience which oh my god it's so scary so just before we get on here the the virtual the vr chat which you did participate on that was that actually wasn't in vr however it was on a laptop being able to do it with somebody in vr and we were able to actually analyze their movements whereas the other times they are times where you've been able to put on the the headset yeah so i have used the headset before lockdown occurred um so i used i think they had the oculus rift and it was quite good uh, i used a lot of those apps and it gave me a bit more experience in, in terms of the immersive experience it's a bit disorientating, I'm not going to lie, because you don't really know what's going on. My friends are laughing and tittering and pushing me around and choking around. So it's kind of it has to be quite an isolating experience for you to play VR yeah. with any, uh, any interruptions. I did VR chat on Steam, which is free, by the way. So if you want to check it out, by all means, go ahead. It only takes about a gigabyte on your computer. So it's not really that um, expensive or hardware intensive. So the only thing I would sort of say was the comparison 
I was sitting there on my laptop, geared out, and my friend was in their, their bedroom playing with their headset and the movement, the fluidity, it was just mesmerizing. They're yeah. sitting there doing their fingers, they're sitting there waving, having a wee dance, sitting down, admittedly falling on the bum. And yeah, I was just sitting there like, yeah, I was like, I was like, Paper Mario was so clunky, it was just hopping around the screen and I just felt like I had a limb cut off a wee bit and I felt like a bit excluded myself. But I think like we should just bring it back here. Yeah, completely agree. If we just bring it back to this aspect of it being a novelty, do you think it's a gimmick or do you think we have potential to really create something amazing here? I don't think it's a gimmick anymore. I really do feel like it's going to be amazing in a couple of years' time if this is what... Uh, the te- technology and the hardware is now think of the games and the freedom now developers are going to have to be able to develop those games the best way to summarize our sort of opinion on that is mark zuckerberg himself that it's taken a bit longer than we thought and i'm still optimistic i think that the long-term vision and the reasons why i thought this was going to be important big or unchanged i think that's the best way of summarizing that sort of debate we're not quite there but that doesn't mean there isn't a promise that we'll get there would you agree yeah, I agree with that statement, but I don't agree with his use. <laughs> we'll keep that away from the podcast. <laughs> don't worry, it'll probably come up again. Are you for or are you, for, are you against now? I feel that I'm more for than I was against. So that was me doing the research, being able to understand the games that are out there, and watching the footage on it, it actually looks really, really fun. I've only tried um, virtual reality once or twice before in my whole life, but actually seeing it and looking at the games and looking how people actually do it now... It's very entertaining. I actually watched um, Swagger Souls uh, play a bit of VR. He's done a few YouTube videos on it as well. And watching him do it live on stream compared to the YouTube video, it's very, very funny and it makes for great content. I completely agree. I think there was also a fella, not the plug or anything, he was called Oasis, and he was very good too. Yeah, we just found him there today beforehand, and he does some really, really great reviews. So I would definitely recommend to, to check out some of his videos if you're definitely considering getting a um, virtual reality headset, because he does reviews and he also looks at the games, and it's it just it's great for anybody who's thinking about getting into it. I think one of the things we need to sort of focus on is we've talked about the hardware, we've talked about the industry, we've talked about how it's progressively starting to become more valid in the the industry as a fully-fledged product. But I think what we need to sort of concentrate is on what connection do we have with gaming on a personal level and how we sort of become engaged with it psychologically. So one of the aspects that I would like to sort of put a microscope on is the concept of immersion so like if we look at the likes the history of gaming we've moved from arcades to home consoles to portable consoles and to online communities gaming starting to become very intimate and an intense experience it's only natural that we should be allowed to now walk within the game itself would you agree with this yeah i feel like years ago they thought virtual reality was a sort of concept, you know, and it's kind of like I want to use Scooby-Doo and the Cyber Chase as a very unique reference where they actually went into the game. Understandably, it's a cartoon, but that there's the way people thought of it years ago. Even Jumanji now, you know, people are in the video game and that there's essentially what we are doing. We are are participating in this experience, which puts us inside the game. So it, it's revolutionary and it's great to be a part of and be able to see uh, how far it's came from back in 1990s or even before that to, to now. I think that the like the prospect of the gaming experience 
is limitless in terms of how we sort of interact with the world. Our characters are an exciting concept, but it's an intimidating prospect, maybe from a developer's perspective. Would you certainly say that there's a lot of archaic attitudes we've adopted towards virtual reality gaming and that we've developed a sort of elitist traditionalist? Some people look at virtual reality and just say, you know what, I don't think it'll ever work, no matter how good or how cheap or how expensive it is. Or do you think I'm sort of being far-fetched there? I think everybody's interested to try it, but I feel like everybody kind of had, or a few people in certain camps had the opinion that I had, that they do want to try it, but it's not quite there yet. And now after doing research, it's still not quite there yet, but it's making a step in the right direction. I think that the public needs to slowly get used to the unique mechanics. Yeah. If you go, for example, to E3 or if you go to video games or even a conference in general, it seems that more people will have uh, virtual reality headsets there so people can do experiences and not just within the gaming world. If you go to like an industry event or like a museum or something like that, they will have virtual reality stuff there. And it goes to show you that it's not just in the gaming world, it's actually expanding out as well. So these experiences will take place in the most random places that you won't expect. You were saying that VR is just cropping up random places. VR is not something that everyone essentially needs or wants. It's not necessarily going to be like something like a smartphone. It's not something that makes sense in every scenario or for every person. It's not meant to replace traditional gaming, some might say. VR is an entirely new experience and it begs to be tried and in all likelihood, it'll leave you wondering why you didn't try it sooner. I certainly know after my experiences with virtual reality gaming, I never forgot them. Now we're going to move into our Game of the Week showdown. Welcome to the first ever Game of the Week showdown. The rules of the showdown are simple. Both players pick a game they support that fit the bill for a specific theme for this week. Both will then battle against one another in an animated debate to see which game comes out on top. The three categories to focus on are plot, mechanics, unique appeal. The winner picks the theme for the week and takes home the championship title for that week. Games used once may never be used again in upcoming showdowns. This week's theme, the game you first play. So we don't actually know what we've picked. Uh, Nicole, do you want to share what you've picked first? Yeah, so the game that I've remember playing first was the legend of zelda ocarina of time which was came out in 1998 so that's just four years after i was born i was really really young and i think that it's probably the best game in terms of the legend of zelda series and it's also revolutionary in terms of just general 3d games in the nintendo 64 franchise yeah so my game is also for the n64 it is star fox 64 and my had two games I was going to pick from. Your one actually was my second game because I played that all the time. But my earliest memory, I believe, which was playing with my dad, was um, Star Fox 64. And it's amazing. It's possibly one of the best games deemed of all time. And it sold over 4 million copies, actually. And was the second top-selling game of 1997. Can I just fact-check you? Yeah, you can fact-check me on that. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> I've done my research. Star Fox 64? Yep. Star Fox 64. I don't think that's the right title. It is the right title. It was in Europe. Sorry, no, it was in America because they called it Lilat Wars. 
at some point because they thought that it was too close to some German name and hence why they changed it to that because they didn't want to have copyright. So yes, I have done my research. I had no idea. Oh my god, (laughs) I'm scared. Yes, since I'm on a roll here, I'm going to get into the plot of my game and we will start the battle. So Star Fox for the N64 is about a fox called Fox McCloud and his band of merry men who have to save the galaxy from the evil Emperor Andros. So Andros is a big monkey head and you have to choose your path as you fly through the galaxy to be able to choose one or two endings. If you take the very easy path, you will fight a robot Andros, who's not the true Andros, but if you choose the very hard path and specific ways, you'll end up fighting a monkey brain, which is known as Andros. He, you will then kill him and the whole place will explode and your father will come magically to guide you out of there and it's a happy ending i just love how you explain it like you should have a youtube series on how to explain games in under 30 seconds so because all i got from that was you're a really cool fox that can fly around the galaxy with your barry band merry band of men who actually are animals and you like to slay monkey brains and be saved by your Dead, not dead father. Yeah, it was very revolutionary. You also wear sunglasses. <laughs> oh my God, your oh, your three year old brain must have burst when you saw that. Four year old. Four year old. I thought it came out in nineteen ninety seven. It came out in nineteen ninety seven, but I didn't play it till two thousand because I was that young. So why don't you tell us about um, the Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time? Okay, so Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time. I genuinely think it's one of the best Zelda games um, that were released, and it's definitely revolutionary in terms of how it was developed. But more on that later on. So in terms of the plot, it starts as a nightmare. The young princess Zelda is effectively stolen by the overlord Ganondorf in the middle of the night, and you almost remember it like a dream sequence. You wake up as an eleven-year-old boy in his home village of Cockery in the Lost Woods. And you basically go through uh, the adventure of his life in trying to rescue Princess Zelda. And this leads the players through loads of different villages and dungeons, even a volcano. And you face all these massive um, bosses. However, whenever you sort of get into the plot, there's two different stories almost emerge. So whenever you get the um, Master Sword, you're able to time travel, i.e. the Ocarina of Time. Um, and you are able to play two plots. So I kind of think that there's almost two stories in one, and that's one of the reasons why the plot's probably the best. Mm, Okay, I think I'm going to go easy on you this time, and I think I'm going to give you that, because it's kind of like my second favourite game of all time compared to the the Star Fox 64, which is obviously my favourite game, and hence why I chose it. So I'll give you that one, I'll let it slide. You're only giving me that because... Deep down, you're crying inside. You're the biggest Zelda fanboy that I know in the whole world. Breath of the Wild nearly made you cry like a baby. Yeah, I know. It was amazing. But that's not what we're talking about today. Now we're talking about the the game mechanics. And I'm going to say why Star Fox was better than Zelda. So with Zelda, you know, you had the sword and that. You had the shield. But one of the things with Star Fox is that you actually had a crew with you. You're able to shoot. You're able to maneuver. It's a bit like the arcade at home. That's the way that I, I kind of think it. So years ago, you used to have to go down to the arcade. You used to put your penny in the machine. You used to play like um, Space Invaders and I think the early Star Fox as well. This is inviting that into your home. And it's it makes me just feel like a kid again talking about it. So I can only imagine what... Uh, people felt back then whenever they were able to do this technology it's amazing 
Plus, it's the fact you're able to choose where you want to go. It's it's a story. It's not linear. So if you want to go to a certain level, you know it's hard. You can go there. If you're starting out, it's easy. You can go there as well. And there's also a co-op mode, or not a co-op mode. There's a arcade mode. So you know you and your friends come around. You can battle against each other. You can get better, and it's just great. I understand what you're saying there, but in terms of mechanics, do you not find that when you're in flight mode and you're going through the levels, the fact that you can only really move left to right and up and down kind of takes you out of the rotation of like being able to experience the world? So you're not able to pan the camera. Do you not find it's kind of clunky sometimes? You see, you actually are able to do that once you enter all range mode. And all range mode is whenever you're able to go and actually attack a certain boss enemy. So it is linear up until then. It's a bit like a Zelda dungeon. You have to go straight till you get to the boss. And once you get to the boss, it kind of opens up. So I'd say that there's a real need for you to be able to go straight and forward. And uh, I feel like being able to go around the world like that would maybe take away a bit from the game. Well, I think the mechanics for the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of the Time is very interesting because a lot of like the sort of sword combat system was really different. It really took like a revolutionary step away from what it used to be. Um, even if you look into some of the documentaries from the sort of developers, they were taking a lot of their inspiration from the likes of like real sword um, combat styles. I remember you watched that video with me not that long ago. Do you remember, Carl? Yes, I do. The sort of like level of detail that they're able to sort of bring into the mechanic was really interesting. And it sort of like takes a step away from that sort of 3D platformer that we were maybe used to in Super Mario 64. So obviously you're being thrown into so many different environments and the way with which they're able to sort of cope with that is amazing. So just say, for example, you're in the Lost Woods and you're in the first dungeon. And when you go into the first dungeon, you're climbing up in the vines, you're able to jump. So there's a really interesting feature that they have that's like the auto jump feature. So instead of you having to press A or B or jump, you're just able just to automatically do it, which really brings a wee bit more fluidity into it. But I think maybe in terms of mechanics, you might have won this round. Yeah, I just want to fact check there. You actually can go up into Lost Woods. You actually go to the Great Dooku Tree to begin with. Did you actually play this game? <laughs> I did play this game. I know. I'm just really, really emotional right now, okay? Leave me alone. Now we're going to go to the final category, which is unique appeal. So like I said about mine, how it's kind of like arcade-like and you're able to sit down and play it like that. But the beauty of Star Fox for the 64 is that anybody can play it. Me as a four-year-old was able to play it. My dad... Does that say much about you or how silly the game is that a four-year-old can play it? It's not silly, it's simplistic. It means that anybody can enjoy it. And I enjoyed it as a kid being able to watch my dad play it. And then he was able to give it to me and say, here, you try that. And I was able to pick up on it very, very easily. It's just the fact that it's for everybody. And me and him were able to play against each other. And it was just... Uh, there's a lot of nostalgia for me, so that's probably why I'm batting for it so hard. But I feel like for a game of that time, like it was so popular, that's why it sold 4 million copies. That's why it is deemed possibly one of the, the greatest video games of all time, because it took the arcade and brought that into the living room and into the home setting. I genuinely think that The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time sold more. I think it was 4.38 million copies. Is that not more now? It might have sold more in 1998, but for 1997, it definitely sold over 4 million 
for N64. So Ocarina of Time came out in 1998, I believe, but um, Star Fox came out in 1997. I would sort of maybe counter-argue. You say that the nostalgia factor is unique. Is it not just looking backwards as opposed to forwards? Like, you said everyone can play it. Does that make it different, or does it just make it user-friendly? It made it different for the time. Like, do you believe as a kid that... Well, maybe you were able to pick it up as a kid and play for it, but were you able to get far in Zelda? Did you need any help at some point? No. I was a pretty intuitive learner. Um, If I wasn't absolutely scared of the zombies or the skeletons that came out of the Hyrule field, I usually find myself, most of the time, playing minigames, which I'm going to take as a really cool segue to why I think my game is unique. Okay, go for it. So just sort of going off what I was saying there... Um, there's so many like mini games that are invited into this roaming or this massively immersive game where you can just roam around the world. So, for example, you could just sort of clock off from Gandor for maybe a minute or two, and you can go on to like do fishing games. There was a Rumble Pack support, and you could do so many other games like go to. Um, oh my god, I'm forgetting names. This is so bad. <laughs> do you remember the stables? Oh, the Lawn Lawn Ranch. The Lawn Lawn Ranch. And I kept thinking of Moo Moo Milk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so you go to the Lawn Lawn Ranch. I was massively into horses, so I spent most of my time there. But beyond just that, the Ocarina of Time sort of introduces the ability to travel back and forth in time. I know I mentioned this earlier, but it kind of brings into that contrast of the world before it was evil, the world when it was evil. And like without giving too much away, you sort of need to consider that during this point in time, you're able to talk to a character's adolescent Link, um, who tells you that a young boy with an Ocarina did something seven years ago. So it's really cool that you'll be able to take yourself out of that linear timeline that you were discussing with Star Fox, and you're able to sort of twist your timeline. And it's almost like you're learning a lot about yourself before you've even experienced it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's a whole bunch of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I do believe that I'm probably going to have to admit defeat on this one just because purely I love The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time and I I think you made a really good argument for it and in terms of the unique appeal for it, I feel like it's done something that only a few games have, have ever done. I, I said that Star Fox um, N64 is possibly one of the greatest games of all time, but Zelda definitely sits above that because back in the time in the day there was it was just so unique for its time like you said about being able to have the open world and be able to time travel like that their uniqueness above a game was absolutely insane plus the story perspective as well incorporated all into one and being a kid and experiencing a video game for the best first time I think that this is probably one of the best experiences you're ever going to get. Thank you. I will humbly take my title for now. And I have a theme for next week. And that is going to be really out there. Detective Games. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you very much for all your support. Now back to the show. So at this point in the show, you ask your questions and offer your opinions. If you would like to get in touch with the podcast, our mail is askplayer2 at gmail.com. Just to be clear, that's the number two. So askplayer2pod at gmail.com. The first person to write in this week is John Kern. 
His question is, so with many remakes being released, Final Fantasy VII, Trials of Mana, Xenoblade and Tony Hawk's 1 and 2, just to name a few, do you think you need to play the originals to fully appreciate the remakes? What's your thoughts on this? I do feel like you need to play the remakes if you want to... Sorry, I do believe that you... Okay, I'm going to start that question again. Okay. I do believe that you need to play the originals to fully appreciate the remix because the originals could have came out 10 to 20 years ago and whenever you played them back then people had a very emotional attachment to it. There's a lot of nostalgia built up around that so whenever these games are released and remastered 10, 20 years down the line people have a lot of love for them so if you played them back in the day you're able to experience that love and joy and you can see now with the updated graphics and the updated mechanics you can fully appreciate how much the game has changed and how much work and effort has went into remastering it and making the nostalgia come back to life i think it was really nicely the way you worded that and i honestly do understand what you're saying about nostalgia however i don't think you need to play the originals to fully appreciate the remix and here's the reason why if you take the basic recipe of why the original was good in the first place and kept it authentic to, to it as much as possible you can really enhance the experience with all the different sort of graphics hardware and techniques and development that try to make it not only an authentic experience to what it originally was but also one that's better so maybe we'll agree to disagree on this one yeah okay I, we can agree to disagree on it but i do believe that if you played spyro like couple of years ago and then you play it now the only thing that's really changed is the graphics and how much it's not buggy anymore so that there's like the argument i make is that people who absolutely loved spyro as a kid then went and played it and now they, they come and play it and it's the exact same game updated graphics it looks so well and it's a beautiful beautiful remaster and that there's probably one of the examples i was kind of looking at i'm going off what you said there about spyro and that's really interesting the way you ordered it i do agree with spyro i think it's really just particular to who grabs that original and remakes it it's really up to how they're able to actually develop it whenever you look at the likes of tony hawks one and two a lot of people have emotional connections to it it was fabulous at the time and i think they're starting to release a remake in september time and some of the stuff that they've added to it have just made it so much better i think in terms of the graphics um the sort of way you're able to style the different tricks you can do even the way the world changes, the sun, and it's just so much more fleshed out in real life. Maybe that's down to the gaming engine or the fact that the developers that were brought back in were the original developers of Tony Hawk's 1 and 2. So it really is just particular to each game. So I think we could both agree to a certain extent, but also it does have its benefits. Okay, so sum it up, you say you don't need to play the remakes I said you probably should play the remakes if you want to get the full authentic experience. The second question we have is from Bowie Liao. Do you feel that first-time gamers are less welcome to the online gaming community, especially during the lockdown of the COVID-19 crisis? What's your thoughts on this, Carl? I don't think that anybody is less welcome to the gaming community. I feel like the gaming community is very opening is very welcome and if you ever watch those videos online it doesn't matter what age you are uh, you can be a kid or you could be an old person and the gaming community will welcome you with open arms no matter what you can see the best uh, the best of people online but i think that maybe getting into online gaming is a different story but there's a lot of like hardware out there you can get there's a lot of secondhand games and i'm pretty sure like maybe siblings might have older consoles and there's also online platforms that are giving away free games such as the Epic Game Store. 
I think for first-time gamers that you are more welcome to the online gaming community during the COVID crisis. Some gaming platforms are being really creative in terms of getting new gamers. And a lot of people are being really creative and collaborative in terms of being able to socialize with their friends online. It's sort of the nature of the beast. Gaming can be a bit of an introverted activity, but everyone is an introvert. Being an introvert is cool now. So in terms of what way to approach the game online gaming community as someone who's relatively new? Just stay away from competitive gaming. You're going to get people that are going to be abrasive or regardless. But just get involved. Just have a bit of fun. Don't take yourself too serious. And don't spend too much money on hardware or anything that's expensive. Just sort of go with the flow. Find out what's your niche. And you'll be able to find a community. No bother. Our next question is from Jonathan Hamill. Do you think licensed games have made a resurgence these past few years? I think that there has been a small resurgence in some of the licensed games. A lot of them being like big, massive franchises like Marvel, Disney, even some licensed games have sort of crept into the mobile gaming industry. But there's a few games that came out recently, like Jumanji, the video game, there's Ice Age, Scratch Nutty Adventure, and even Garfield Kart Furious Racing. I don't really think that we're in the golden age of licensed games. I don't know if you remember the THQ era where if you had a game... It was either a movie, a comic, a cartoon. It was fabulous. I loved it. It wasn't made particularly well, but it really resonated in terms of pop culture. I didn't really think that licensed games were kind of making a comeback till I seen those questions and actually thought about it uh, in depth because the the death of licensed games, I believed, was whenever the Wolverine uh, Origins came out. And that was the last real licensed game that I can remember that came out. And since then, there hadn't really been any. There'd been loads on mobile, and maybe there'd be like a couple of licensed Marvel games and a couple of licensed Disney games. But whenever you really put it in that perspective, such as like the Ice Age game, you can start to see it slowly coming back. So, do could we be seeing uh, a surge of new licensed games coming out on mainstream consoles over the next couple of years? Because I know that they're planning on doing a few Doctor Who ones over the next um, year or two. I certainly think that there has been a resurgence when we reflect upon it. Upon doing a wee bit of research myself, I understand that there's actually quite a lot of franchises that are releasing games. They're not like powerful AAA console games that many people would you know, sing their praises about in E3, but the likes of like Zombieland, Double Tap is one to name a few. There's even Narcos, The Rise of the Cartels, Netflix. So I definitely think that there is licensed games creeping in but I don't think we're quite there yet the way it used to be back in the day of the PS2 THQ. Our next question comes in from Sandra Walsh. In your opinion, has the internet ruined some of the magic of gaming? For example, with tutorials and walkthroughs available basically as soon as the game is released, cutscenes being uploaded to YouTube, general spoilers, and how quickly rumours can be debunked. The Mew Under the Truck rumour never would have lasted this long if we had the internet. So I'm going to agree with Sandra on this one and said the internet has ruined some of the magic of gaming. So there is a lot of spoilers that are available whenever the game first starts. There's a lot of cutscenes that are upload. But I feel like you need to go searching for that. Uh, the best example that I have is whenever I started playing The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, I made an active effort not to look up for tutorials and walkthroughs. I wanted to have that nostalgia as I had as a kid whenever I played Ocarina of Time. And I really do believe if you make a strong effort not to look at tutorials and walkthroughs, then the internet cannot ruin the magic of gaming for you. 
I'm going to bounce in and say that I think the internet has ruined the magic of gaming, but I also appreciate that growing up with the internet, as someone from the 90s, that if we have a question, there'll always be an answer. So you can, to a certain extent, say that they've been debunked and the myth of Mew under the truck is going to sound terrible, but I never even heard of it until now. So <laughs> the fact it wasn't a myth to me, you can sort of opt to not get involved in that. I know Carl is himself quite privy to looking up the odd spoiler walkthrough or ways or tips and tricks, but I think that all just sort of enhances it, kind of like a, a guide word or a companion book. So use it effectively to enhance your gaming experience, but that doesn't mean there isn't a danger. And our last question this week is from Eddie Hagen. What games would you like to see with new mini consoles that Nintendo might release in the future? Okay, let's do the top three games that we would like to see for the N64 mini. Yeah, I genuinely think that the N64 Mini is going to probably be the most desired. So the top three that I have is Super Mario 64. Easy. Mario Party, which was a secret pleasure. Not many people appreciate the new ones. And GoldenEye, which is a masterpiece. What's your top three? My top three are Star Fox 64, Mario Kart 64, and the winner from today's showdown, The Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time. Thank you very much for listening to the first episode of Enter Player 2. Make sure to visit us on all the social medias. Links to our Twitter, Instagram and Facebook can be found in the link description. Please be sure to subscribe and you'll never miss a show. If you like the show, we'd appreciate if you left a rating and a review. Plug in and join us again at Enter Player 2. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for joining. Goodbye. Bye.